Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One on the 20th year anniversary of the recording of the album. Today, we are talking about The Strokes, Is This It? Micaiah, we've got an incredible guest today. We have the producer of The Strokes' debut and follow-up albums, Gordon Raphael. And before we jump into our interview with him, Micaiah, why is this album on your list? I mean, it's pretty undeniable, right? I mean, I, you know, someone who who was growing up in the 2000s, I mean, this is just an album that comes up over and over and over again when I was growing up. Going, you know, forming bands in, in middle school and high school, you know, everyone... Not, not every, but in every group, you know, someone had a Strokes shirt, a Strokes poster up in the band room. You know, I mean, it's just so much a part of uh, me growing up as a musician and, and a young music lover. And yeah, so it's pretty enough. I mean, it, and it defines so much of what comes after it. If we want to include albums from the past 20 years, you know, one of the first ones you're going to say is, is this it by the strokes? I, I'm with you on that. This album came out on my 21st birthday. And oh, this wow. makes sense to me. This album came out during my first year at the University of Central Florida. And it came out during the last kind of season of my life that I was still playing in a band. And this album was something so radically different from the time. And if you don't remember, this was during a period of time where pop music owning the airwaves. And in terms of rock music or alternative music, uh, it had really drifted towards this version of new metal. Um, think about bands like Corn and Limp Biscuit, some of these bands that you think about now and you make not fun only, of. Yeah, not only that, but two of the biggest bands, rock bands of the time, are also. Creed, Nickelback is emerging, like on the Spider-Man soundtrack. You know, so, I mean, rock and roll at this point is lame. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, it, it, it's just lame. And in the TRL generation, you know, it's like you're saying, it's all about the big pop stars. And also, hip-hop is supreme at this mm-hmm. point. Hip-hop is now mainstream. It's come a long way from when we were talking about Tribe. Like uh, Jay-Z's The Blueprint also comes out 9-11, 2001. Mm-hmm. You know, and, it's, and it's huge. Yeah, there, there are, again, there, there's great hip-hop albums coming out during this period of time. There are great pop albums. Whether or not you're a fan of pop music, pop music was controlling the airways during the time, and there is great pop music that's coming out during this period of time. There is not good rock music that's coming out. And then suddenly, in not in, not in America, not in America. Certainly not in no. America. Another album that we're going to talk about this season that comes out almost the same time is Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco. Is another album of 2001 that comes out. But The Strokes Is This It, uh, really, along with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and maybe just two or three other albums, really begins to redefine what rock music will be and what rock music will sound like for the next 10 years for sure arguably the next 20 
And you hear that when you listen to Is This It, you find yourself saying, man, this sounds a whole lot like this band or a whole lot like that band. And you begin to realize the impact that this album had on the next decade, next 20 years worth of music. And it was just different. And I think that's what we're going to see in our conversation today with Is This It producer Gordon Raphael about how different this album was from what was coming out during that time. And so without any further ado, we're going to take you to a quick sponsor break, and then we'll be back with our interview with Strokes producer Gordon Raphael. Hey, it's Rob. And before we get you on to our interview with Strokes producer Gordon Raphael, we want to take a moment to highlight our independent record store of the week. This week, we are focusing on New York City's own Academy Records and CDs. Located at 12 West 18th Street, you can find all that you're looking for at Academy Records and CDs. They're available on their website, academy-records.com, or you can reach out to them any day between Tuesday and Saturday, noon to 6 p.m. at 212-242-3000. Academy Records is your number one stop to buy and sell vinyl records, compact discs, DVDs, and Blu-ray movies. They are the largest selection of vinyl records. They have the largest selection of vinyl records and CDs in the Flatiron District of New York City. And if you are local to New York City, you know just how tough a year it has been for independent record stores in the tri-state area. So won't you reach out to Academy Records and CDs today? Or if you're anywhere in the United States, reach out to academy-records.com in considering purchase your next vinyl record, maybe your copy of The Strokes Is This It from Academy Records. Now, let's get on to our sponsor. It is a thrill to us to be speaking to you today. Um, but one of the things we weren't even thinking about until really this last week is we've been reading up on the album and so much that went into the production around it is that we are about a month away from celebrating 20 years since you went into the studio with these guys and recorded this album. That's so true. So true. What is, what does that time feel like for you? Does it feel like just yesterday or does it feel like a, a lifetime ago? Uh, it feels like time certainly flies when you're having way too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's crazy to me to think 20 years has gone by. Uh, but I definitely got lost in a lot of activities during that time. And so, yeah, it seems about right. Tell us a little bit about your experience, your exposure to music growing up. And, and what was it that first attracted you to music? And, and how did that that kind of love of music turn into uh, becoming a musician and a producer? Oh, it's a long story. Um, well, my dad was a jazz saxophone player. So I grew up with him playing uh, bebop and big band swing music on records in our living room rather loudly and jamming his saxophone to that. And I didn't really love that experience. 
Um, I was try often trying to sleep as a little kid, and this noise, it's kind of, I had a negative association with it. But on the other hand, he also played acoustic guitar, and he played me these cowboy songs. I guess there was a folk music revival going on about the time I was a kid. So he would be singing these songs about, like, a lonely cowboy who, like, killed his girlfriend because she was with another man and he's writing to the new you know hang down your head tom dooley i think that's the name of the song and like and all these romantic images of cowboys in the wild west and singing on a guitar something about that kind of piqued my imagination and a little while after that when i was probably like six or seven i'd go out to my swing set and i'd kind of hang upside down and i sing make up songs about the Wild West explorers that were on the back of my cereal boxes, okay? So, um, yeah, so that's kind of one aspect. Then when I was about 10 years old, my that same dad of mine, came, we were living in Seattle by that time. I grew up in the East Coast. And he brought home Sergeant Peppers. And he put it on. And something about that really blew my mind. Even as a 10-year-old, I'm going like, whoa, that's interesting listen to those words and stories and listen to those crazy sounds what is that it really piqued my interest and then he brought home another record that blew the whole deal for him and completely like my fate was sealed when he brought home frank zappa and the mothers of invention a record called we're only in it for the money now wow. this thing like the beatles was really crazy and interesting but this was like crazy on 10 degrees higher level. This was complete insanity to me. Uh, it, was, it was like a, a parody album of the psychedelic era. And it had the same cover as the mothers of an, as, uh, the, the Beatles, Sgt. Peppers, but turned inside out. So they copied even the album cover of Sgt. Peppers and then proceeded to make fun of the entire rock and roll and musical establishment and kids and youth culture, but they did it in a very appealing way. And when I heard that, I kind of took that record to my friend's house and we started listening and studying it. And then I kind of decided that music was one of the most important things in the world. Like it was really gonna change everybody's thinking. This crazy mm. rock music was gonna make everybody think in a different way. That's what I, that's what I thought when I started really taking music seriously. Yeah. Did you go through a phase at that point of music is going to change the world, so I've got to get in a band? And yeah, then at 13, I joined a band and I could play loud. In fact, I had to hit the piano very hard to keep up with the other guys' guitar amps in the band. So this was this felt really good. And at 13, I was playing shows and concerts and, you know, rocking out and learning about that lifestyle. Draw a line for us. How did you get from musician and being in bands to producing? It had to do with getting kicked out of band after band after band from the age of 13 until the age of 17, 18. I kept getting kicked out of bands because I couldn't play very well. And I couldn't understand all that mathematical shit about counting. Like, wait, I wait four and then I come in and then halfway through one, I come in. Like, all that math really confused me, especially because I was a, what we call in my industry, a prolific bong toker. <laughs> so that meant that thinking logically and sequentially was not going to happen in my brain. 
And mm-hmm. so I got kicked out, kicked out, kicked out. But still, in my heart, I had that eight-year-old thing going like, music is the most important thing in the world. It's going to change everybody's thinking. You've got to go on. You've got to write your own songs. So I thought, how am I going to write my own songs if there's an engineer in the room or other musicians and they're making fun of me while I try to figure out chords on the guitar or if I'm uh, taking mushrooms and I'm coming up with lyrics to songs. Like, I don't want anybody laughing at me and telling me like what I'm doing is, you know, not in rhythm and not cool. So I thought if I can learn how to use a tape recorder, reel-to-reel tape recorder and a microphone and an echo machine and a mixer and some speakers, I'm going to be winning the game. And I set about learning how to use that equipment. And it took me a very long time. When the sound stopped working, I didn't know which cable was broken or which button I'd pushed and I'd go into a very big panics. And if I did record something, it would be very distorted accidentally. And then when I got something I liked, I'd easily erase it by accident. Of all these tribulations was my university of how I learned how to record music. There's the old saying that uh, failure is a better teacher than success ever will be. Uh, so you, 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 were, you were learning important lessons the hard way. I was a magna cum laude in the university of failure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you talked about struggling some with, with music because of the math that comes into it. And yeah. so much of production, especially the route you took into it really comes through engineering. It, it is, right. it is sound engineering. It is mixing. It is understanding the electronics of how processors and pieces come together. Mm-hmm. So you unintentionally are, are really diving deep into all of the moving parts that you have to understand mm. to be a producer. And well, I'm sure it didn't take long for you to realize that you had information now that most of the bands that kicked you out didn't have. Well, it's funny you mention it because I've worked with people who are like even, even the, the guru from the strokes who worked with us on the first couple records I've worked with people who go like, hey, you know, EQ at 60K and boost at 1 dB. And that to me is like a mathematical formula. And I, I don't understand frequencies by the number. I don't understand how electricity works or how these pieces of equipment work. For some reason, just by sheer uh, investing my time, investing my time and knowing that my whole life was going to be focused through these machines It started with a synthesizer with many knobs and many switches. And I didn't know what they all did. I didn't know what their technical purpose was, but I got to the point where I could control it like it was part of my hand. Like any thought I could think of, I could find it easily, like quickly, like like it became part of me. So I have an intuitive operational understanding of how to make music and sounds and mixes I can't do mastering because that's purely a technical skill. I do not understand how to master, but I can mix and I can, I can record and I can edit and I can do all kinds of magic with computers and technology and preamps, compressors, microphones, organs, amps. I can just do that stuff like, like it's candy. It's just natural for me, but it's wow. not because of a technical understanding of any of it. 
it's just familiarity that you just become so familiar with it that you I know. I played it. guitar amps so many times that I know if you want a brighter sound, you just turn the treble up. And if it's something too boomy, you take the bass down. And if you want to blow, I, you know, I'm really, I really made a career of, and I was interested in unusual sounds like taking equipment and doing things. It wasn't necessarily, no one else would think it was cool. Like, Hey, it sounds broken. It sounds, it sounds like you're destroying this. It sounds, you know, something's not quite right. I really love sounds that make you go, what is that? I like making keyboards sound like guitars. I don't like keyboards that sound like keyboards unless it's a piano. And I like to make guitars sound like something really abstract, like a feel. I don't want to, I'm not really that interested in somebody that can show me so much control of their chords and their voicings and their understanding of the fretboard. I just want to see them do something magic. You know, I like those moments in music. Because as, as we've been listening this week back to Is This It? And reading so much about that experience of, of producing this album and yeah. in the recording of this album, it's interesting that you say that you, you really... Are, are drawn to strange sounds, sounds that, that, that don't seem to be a good fit. Uh-huh. And, and in many ways, what seems to be defining of Is This It, the, the guitar sounds are not very affected. It seems to be there's, there's some, no some white overdrive, and that's about Un- it. Unlike anything I ever made before or practically since, there are no effects. Like there is no reverb, there is no phase, there is no echo, no chorus, no doubling of anything, no extra overdubs, no tambourines, no drum machine, you know, it's all just some people playing their music, you know, and, and at that time, that was considered, that was kind of perceived as a revolutionary act, because that wasn't cool, and that wasn't being done anymore. So, because we had just moved into the computer age for music and people could go bigger and bigger and bigger with more samples and more effects and, than ever before, all computer controlled to micro perfection. And so the first thing the band told me is, hey, uh, we're not sure exactly what we want to do, but whatever everyone else is doing, let's not do that. Oh, okay. Well, for me, I understood that. That was perfect. That made perfect sense. I said, basically, go out there. I have eight microphones available in my studio in the basement here. And uh, go play your songs. And I'll, I'll capture the sound of your band on eight microphones. And we'll call that a record. Well, let me, let me ask you about your first impression of the Strokes. How did, how did you meet these guys? How, what, what was your connection point to them? And especially for someone, like you said, that, that your production on this album... Is, is different than anything you've done that you did since or, or, or before or since. Yes. How did, how did you get connected to the Strokes? I grew up in Seattle and I moved to New York around the end of the 90s. And that wasn't the first time I moved to New York, but let's just stay, say <laughs> that when I moved and I uh, had the opportunity to become a producer for the first time for other people. I've been producing my own stuff for a long time. <laughs> In the end of the 90s, for some reason, people in New York, young musicians were coming to me and letting me record their music in my studio. I now had a job, which was really cool. I had a job recording bands and I had a little blue business card with my studio name and my phone number at the studio so we didn't have cell phone. No, I think I got a cell phone right at the beginning of that uh, studio. 
And so I had my phone number, my name, and the studio logo. And I went to as many bands as I, I went out every night that I wasn't working to the clubs on Ludlow Street in the East Village, Lower East Side, New York. And if a band seemed interesting or in my style, I handed them a business card and I said, come to my studio. I make really cheap demos, but you'll like it. And that was, that was, my, that was my pitch right there. And the night I met the Strokes, it was at the Luna Lounge, a great place that was kind of free entry. And they had five bands per night, practically every night. I always went there. And I saw two bands and I handed each of them my business card and said, if you want a cheap demo that's really good, call me. And the, the band I really liked didn't call me. And the second band that I thought was okay, that was kind of cool, but not really my cup of tea, uh, they called me. And uh, that's how I met them. And once they, wow. started, once they started recording in my studio, which was about a week later, or two weeks later, a week later, I realized how interesting their music was and I really liked it. Mm -hmm. So I was able to hear it a different way in my studio than I was at the show for some reason. And that's how I connected with them. So that first recording session with them, that, that was just a, a week later, was that what became the Modern Age EP? Correct. Very early on then, you're recording with them and suddenly there, there's going to be published and released work. There, there's going to be a record label is going to release this. Not every band gets there. There's, there's a whole lot of bands that get to the recording stage and never get to someone's going to release this professionally. What was uh, it like for you when that, when that EP first came out? Well, let's go backwards. When I recorded, recorded them, I gave them a three-day, three-song demo deal. Now, in those days, you record a quick demo and you do as good as you can, and you hope somebody's going to give you the money to come back and really spend the time to develop the songs into the way you want and release it. No one was more surprised than me when Albert told me that Rough Trade loved the demo and they were releasing it with no further editing, no further mixing. It was just like what we made in those three days was now going out into the world. And to be honest, I think I'd recorded a hundred bands by then. And all of them were just sitting on my shelf in their little, uh, you know, CD of information. And I never thought that this music I was recording with the strokes was going to be heard in public. Um, especially because guitar music was not considered cool that year. It was mm. considered old-fashioned and out of style. This is what you're doing for a career. You've got a studio space. You're wanting to be a, you're wanting to be a successful producer. And here it is. Rough Trade is going to release it. And the first thing you hear is, and they don't want to do anything to it. They don't want to send them back into the studio to re-record it. Are, are you immediately full of all the self-consciousness of, of going, no, that wasn't for public consumption. That wasn't for everybody. No, no. Because believe it or not, in those three days, like every day I've ever spent recording that band, The Strokes, so much work was done. It was not, it's not relaxing, like just like, let's record a song and have some beer and smoke cigarettes and go out for dinner. It's like, Oh, we have the studio from noon until midnight. All right. 
You're going to sit in that chair every minute. If you want some food, we'll bring you pizza here. But we're you're, and, and all five of us are going to tell you exactly what we want you to think about, in addition to wanting to hear your ideas, Gordon. And JP Bowersock will also tell you his ideas. So we had seven people focusing like you have no idea. Like a football team that's rehearsed, you know, going for a game. That's kind of like the intensity of focus that we had in the studio every day we recorded any anything I ever did, all the way back to the EP. You know, it was so there was nothing really out of control. There was nothing really, at least from my point of view, from an engineering standpoint or a producing standpoint. I'm sure someone like Julian who is like, and maybe Fab or someone who's like much more of a perfectionist than I am. He probably left that studio thinking that there were about two more days of details that he would wish he would have had time to, you know, re-record and have the band do this section again. And I'm sure his personality would probably be like that. But for me, it was like, wait, they like it just like that. Wow, that's cool. All right, man, something I made is going to be in public. That's the first thing I ever recorded that ever went in public and i've been recording for i don't know a couple decades you know uh and this is the first thing that the public was going to hear that i actually recorded is it That's true good- that uh you didn't know that uh julian was in the band the very first time when they walked into my studio you know fab was carrying some drums and he looked really cheerful and energetic and Albert and uh, Nick walked in with their guitars and pedals and they were chatting with each other. And then this guy walked through the door looking really dour, like really like either hungover from the night before, just really quiet, kind of didn't look up, didn't come rushing in to say hello to me. Just kind of, he's carrying a bag, a shopping bag, paper shopping, brown paper shopping bag. He sit and I see, watch this guy sit down in the live room while everyone's working, getting ready. And he's just kind of sitting down against the wall and he reaches in and he pulls out a beer out of the shop. It's whole, the whole bag's full of beer. And this guy, like kind of not really part of anything and not, he doesn't look very happy or cheerful. He's just kind of sitting there. And I think, why did they bring their friend? You know, he looks like, he, I don't know. Is, is it cool to bring a friend to your first day at recording? <laughs> And then later, he like walked in and said, "Hey, I'm Julian." Um, you know, and, and I figured, oh, okay. He's I didn't know I didn't know his name or anything about him really. I just okay. I figured, okay, he's part of the band. You know, I had a lot to learn, a lot to learn about them and their music in a very short amount of time. Hmm. Can you help us understand who, who is JP? One of the first things Julian told me when he came in to talk to me, he said, "Uh." we've invited our friend JP to come along. Is that okay? And I thought, okay, you know, well, this isn't the friend now where there's going to be a real friend coming in. He said, he's kind of like a mentor to us and we really trust him. And we kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable coming in the studio with you because we don't know you. And we, you know, he's, he's taught us all guitar and he's, he's very, he's real connected with the band. And so he might be able to help us communicate with you if we have any trouble. Do you mind? I thought, no, 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 no. You know, and so the, JP comes in, he's a very big guy, really just a big guy. And he sits on the couch and he's very friendly, friendly enough. And I thought, okay, he's going to sit there and like make the band feel comfortable. But then he really did get proactive. He was really like, 
hey, Gordon, I think uh, we usually use this microphone on that guitar or make, you know, put, put 2K up, 1DB. You know, he's doing that from right, right from the beginning. And I had to pretend I kind of knew what he wanted. And if he said, it's like, if he said, like, boost the highs around 10K, oh, I know what a high frequency is. I know where high is. So I would just, like, make a little EQ curve up high. And he go, yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, so that was the beginning of my relationship of having him sitting behind me on the couch while the band is in the room and him kind of like giving me some uh, advice and some input when he thought it was necessary. And he was very kind and he was very nice and he always was, you know, very warm to me. It wasn't like he was against me in any way or subversive. He was just kind of like this guy that intermediated and help the strokes with some of their musical ideas. One question I, I asked um, some friends who are fellow musicians and like grew up on the strokes and this record. I said, you know, I'm going to be talking to Gordon. Do you guys have any questions? And everyone wanted to know how you got the drum sounds. That was, that's the one, that's the one everyone's top of the list. How do they get well, that sound from the drums? There's a drum sound that sounds like a guy playing the drums. And there's a drum sound that sounds like uh, some weird drum machine. Uh, there's three songs that have this kind of drum machine-y kind of sound. So right from the get-go, when I only had eight microphones available and I wanted to record the whole band at one time, I only could use three mics on the drums. So I had like a mic on the kick, a mic on the snare, and a mic up in the air. And then I also had a room mic in the middle of the room catching the entire chaos of the whole band, including the drums, on this pretty cool microphone that really can hear and capture sound. It's called a condenser mic. It would be like you standing in the middle of a room with a band with no, nothing in your ears to protect you, just listening to that completely crazy sound, all right? So mo a lot of the album, songs like Last Night, um, Take It or Leave It, some, it's just three mics on the drums and a room mic and the whole band playing at the same time uh, except for the vocals. And then on songs like Hard to Explain or Soma. They wanted a drum machine kind of sound and I was able to record the drums on their own. Only three drums, kick, snare, hi-hat. And I was able to use processes with equalizers and gates and separating the drums really far, like so that the hi-hat was as far as he could reach away from the snare and the kick pedal was as far as it could be because I didn't want any of the drums to bleed into each other. Hmm. And then I just used processing and gates, EQ and gates and compressors to make it sound fake and squish like a machine. So that's all I can tell you. Uh, the, only other, the only other question that we've kind of heard um, specific to this album is the opening track is this it and this leads into a kind of a larger question i want to ask i know after the deal with rca mm -hmm. uh gil norton came yeah. on was a was the producer of the pixies and he mm -hmm. came on for a short period but they just weren't happy with what they were getting mm -hmm. and so that they, they came back they came back to you and said hey we you recorded the three songs for the ep Will you record the whole album? So first, tell us, tell us what that conversation was like. And then I have kind of a technical question about what came next. Okay, I want to say one thing first. I want to go back to the drums. 
because I think in all the interviews I've given where I talk about the drums, I realize that there's something very important that I'm missing, which is how weird are those drum parts to begin with for a rock band? I mean, that, I think the writing of the parts, uh, for example, I'm just going to say this one little thing. One of the weirdest things I ever experienced was that sometimes the beats are playing and the kick drum just stops playing. So you just have a hi-hat and a snare. And all of a sudden the kick drum comes back and it feels like the song just got three stories taller and you don't know why. And I don't know any other band. That's the writing. And Julian wrote those drum parts, you know. Fab had to play them so accurately, but Julian wrote those parts. And so it's part of his compositional genius, the way that it's not only the sound that we captured, but it's the way the parts fit. It's so not like a rock and roll drummer with tons of tom-toms and lots of cymbals wanting to show how he can play those drums. This was like, I have to play this really simple beat, but I have to play it like my life depends on it. And then I have to play it without the kick drum. And then I have to, you know, it's, it's all about those kind of things. So I just wanted to add that little bit of information. Obviously for me, I was jumping up and down into the air when I, uh, when I heard that news that I was going to get another chance to work with them. Um, yeah, that was like one of the happiest moments of my life was when I got the phone call, like, can we come back and work with you? Like, I thought it was a done deal and my part of their story was over and it was quite a joy when they came back. And then all that really happened was we had a, a one, one meeting before the sessions began where they played me songs they liked so I could consider John Lennon's drum track from Imagine or, you know, things like that, or Bob Marley's guitar tone or, you know, this and that. They played me a bunch of stuff they liked just to put in my mind, which of course I never thought about again, but it was great having that meeting. So I just went, I just worked with them on the smile factor. When they smiled, it meant I was doing the right thing. And when they looked at me like I was crazy or they were upset, it means I better start looking for a different sound. Yeah. So well, that's, just, that's actually, that was the question that I was going to ask next was tell me about that kind of listening party with, with you and Julian and, and Albert. And, and because, because just that's, that's what's been written the most is I think there's a whole lot within kind of rock historians and rock critics who have written about this album that, that really kind of put a whole lot into that kind of listening party Okay. And to hear you say that actually you, you know, you heard those and then kind of went away and didn't remember any of them as you were thinking yeah. about the album. Sure. That, that's, that's interesting to hear. I'm sure that someone like Julian was remembering. He was remembering that he was interested in the kick tone from, and he was like watching me and giving me advice about, no, make it boomier, make it little, you know, I think he, he could have been thinking about those, but yeah, it was for me, it was just more like, I'm so happy to have these guys sitting in my studio again, playing me their music. I was just kind of lost in the joy and fun of it, listening to music with the strokes. Sure, sounds fun to me. So okay. there's the, the first challenge of recording the band, and then you record the vocals later with Julian. How does it differ recording just the vocals versus the whole band? What's it's the process not, like? It's not different at all. Um, because each individual and each individual and the group had to be totally convinced that there was no better way to do it 
and that we shouldn't try a little harder to capture this tone or record it this way, have it drier, wetter, deeper, brighter, uh, aggressiver, peacefuler, you know, all these things. So it's just the same, you know, how's the snare drum? How's the hi-hat? How's the bass? How's the bass, the hi-hat and the snare drum together? And everybody had an opinion about it. I wasn't mm. working with a bunch of people who were asleep we didn't have cell phones that you could go on and look at anything. They were just for phone calls at the time. So it was like, what's coming through the speakers? What's Fab's foot doing? When Julian sat down to record, you know, everybody listened and they go like, yeah, that's a cool vocal tone. Oh yeah. And Julian's doing it the right way. He's, he's really on it. And Julian would be like, you know, like, Oh yeah, I'm loving this. Or, or he wasn't loving it, but it's like, yeah, this is cool. He would say, yeah, this is cool, or yeah, that sounds right, or let's do it like this. And uh, so it was just like listening. It's always about listening to them and trying to make sure that they're, you know, liking everything that's going on. Well, we were talking mm. about unpopular recording choices and decisions earlier. Uh-huh. And one of them is to have your front man, his vocals distorted for like the whole album. Yeah, and he, and he's and he's uh, he's not above the rest of the mix. He's kind of buried in there with them. Sometimes you can you can barely hear him. He, he's just mixing with the band, it, it, right. more of like a live sound, which was just not happening at the time. So, right. how did you get the? Where, where did you reach? How did you reach the decision on the the right tone and the distortion on the vocals? Distortion on the vocals happened uh, pretty much the first time I recorded Julian on the EP, which was supposed to be a demo. You know, he was this, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do for me? You know, here I'm singing in this microphone. and What are you going to do? And I said, here's what I'm going to do, because I've been working on industrial music all through the 90s. And even in the early 2000s, I was really interested in this band from Vancouver, Canada called Skinny Puppy. And they mm-hmm. distorted they distorted the living hell out of the vocals. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. So I said, hey, Julian, check out this cool sound. And I showed him distortion on 10 uh, on my preamp that's right behind me in this studio that I'm in now, the Avalon preamp. I turned it to 10. And I said, listen to this cool sound. And he came back and he heard that. And he goes, that's ugly, man. I hate that sound. And then he said, I thought, okay, okay, never mind. You know, we're not going to do that. But then he said, you know, what if instead of nuclear devastation, which you just got, what if it was more like blue, you know, comfortable blue jeans, you know, your favorite pair of blue jeans where they're not new, but they don't have holes all over them. You know, I go, okay, so I'm supposed to make the sound of the vocals like comfortable blue jeans. Hmm. What would that be like? So then I heard a little voice after my, I was confused initially. Like I thought he was talking in rhymes and I didn't understand what the hell he was talking about. But then I thought, Oh, maybe he means four instead of can four is still broken and distorted, but it isn't nuclear flattened out like a landscape after a nuclear attack. So I showed him four. He went out and sang the song and I put it on four and he came back. He said, 
dude, that's, that's, that's cool. That's cool. I'll just say this. Believe me, the American record label wanted to fire me immediately when they heard that vocal sound. They completely hated it and told everybody about what a terrible job I was doing, ruining the Strokes' chances for any kind of success. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> and then your, the final question you asked, very valuable question, is how did we arrive at the mix where the vocals are like kind of not really towering above it? You know, every singer wants to be and the radio wants and the record company wants. That singer is the star in the spotlight. And for the Strokes, they thought that was cheesy, especially Julian. He didn't want to be like shining in a spotlight while everyone else was the band in the background. He wanted to be with his friends, everyone treated equally, you know, no, no stars all together. That's how they work in the practice room. That's how they sit in the van. That's how they, you know, that's how their friendship is. And so it became, how do I not stand way out in front of the mix? And yet I want to hear every word and every note I sing. How are you going to do that, Gordon? And I go, well, I don't really know. Uh, let's try this and that. And then he go, oh, they has really great ears. Julian does. They all do. So he would say things like, hey, Gordon, right now on that word, the hi-hat is making it so you can't hear my voice at that quieter volume. So I go back to the hi-hat and I maybe make it less bright or, you know, I, I do something at that moment to make the hi-hat slightly smaller. So it took a lot of work to give them what they considered the mix that they wanted, which was how do you make the vocals not jump off the page, but still hear them because they're not, you know, they're important. And he really labored on every note and every word, and he didn't want those to be lost, just like he didn't want the hi-hat to be lost ever, and the kick drum to be lost ever, and no notes on the bass could be louder than any other notes on the bass. So it was very hard work talking about this 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 avalon rack system that yeah. you're using and and again finding that that distortion on four is that perfect thing and of course the immediate response because this is something that's not done is record label people and i'm sure you guys you know the the money essentially is is going no 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 let's not do it this way you're going to ruin them mm -hmm. and then of course once the album comes out it is almost immediately unanimously acclaimed that the, the critical reception from, from day one is incredible. And then less than a year after being with them, recording in the studio, here is the album that is topping almost everyone's list of album of the year mm -hmm. for 2001. And so all of this work you're doing, whether it's the mix, whether it's the putting the distortion on the vocals, I imagine very, very quickly you went from Gordon is ruining this band's chances for success mm -hmm. to an incredibly sought after producer. What was that, what was that transition like for you to suddenly, you know, because now the only work that you've had that has really hit the mainstream has been an EP and, a and an album that you've done for the Strokes that have been both so critically, success critically acclaimed and successful. Well, you have some very interesting topics there I'd like to address. First of all, 
the record came out in England and Australia and Japan first, okay? And right when the record was supposed to come out in America, 9-11 happened. And the plans for releasing the album were delayed and the track list was changed. And they took New York City cops off the track list. And so this kind of alternative version of Is This It comes out in America. And they spend the whole summer before 9-11 touring all over Europe, festivals, getting really good, a brand new band, the buzz band of the summer all over Europe, okay? But back home in America, you know, maybe some smarty pants that read uh, NME or English newspapers read about the strokes. There wasn't something, there wasn't a big American fever, you know. It was slow going to me, to my, to my eyes, because of 9-11 and because of the United States of America being so big and so, you know, for every New York City and every San Francisco and Los Angeles and Seattle, you've got you know, Texas, Nebraska, Florida, Louisiana, are they going to love the stroke? Are they going to love four boys, you know, singing distorted and about weird poetic topics that hipsters in East Village might enjoy, you know? So I wouldn't say, from my point of view, it wasn't like there was immediate critical and, you know, huge mainstream success. And then I would also say, that I don't even think the success of the Strokes in the year 2001 and 2002, I wouldn't consider it mainstream. I mm. mean, you had Britney speak, I don't know, Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or, you know, whoever else was really topping the chart and being talked about in the mainstream in Billboard and in the Grammys and things. The Strokes, I have to say, were like kind of an undergroundy cool thing that people in Los Angeles really were excited about. On the other hand, in England, from the moment the EP came out, you know, Radiohead and Kate Moss and Jarvis Cocker and all these people were like at the very first shows and they were writing about him in the magazines like they were, you know, the greatest thing, the greatest new thing in the world. And every article, every issue of NME had like five articles. So in England, there was strokes fever. And that's why I came right over to England because I wanted to be part of that. You know, something I made was kind of on fire over in England. So when I stepped over to England, it's like, hey, that's the dude whose picture is in that new album. Let's talk to him and get him in the studio. You know, and I could, I had such a good time just walking up to people that I thought were cool and saying like, I like your band. You want to record? And their manager would come up and shake my hand and say, yes, uh, let me have your phone number and let's, let's get you in the studio real soon. So there was a fever and my life definitely changed, you know, after that summer of 2001. But I think it was a bit of a hard journey for the Strokes to conquer America or to get their recognition in America. They had to do lots of tours, long, slow. I've toured across America like 10 times. And man, when you're taking that bus ride from somewhere on the East Coast all the way across Nebraska and Texas heading up to what the next place is. There's a lot of territory that's long. It's hard. It's not like England. The towns are a couple hours away. Bingo, you're in the next town, your next town. And word spreads around England like wildfire. You know, you can wake up the next morning and everybody knows you all of a sudden. And that doesn't happen very quickly, even with the internet in the United States. It takes repeated campaigns to get, you know, kind of in the culture.
it is easy to forget that it, it wasn't, um, that it didn't immediately take off, that it, that it was, I mean, it was released in Australia in July, Japan in August, the, the, the vinyl only release happens on, on Tuesday, September 11th, when the rest of the, when the album is supposed to be released. And then RCA essentially pulls it back and takes New York city cops off of it. Uh, and, and so there, there is all of these changes and it's so strange how, you know, for those of us who didn't live through it the way that you did, mm-hmm. um, it just all feels like it all happened in one moment that, oh yeah, like suddenly the strokes were the it band all of a sudden when, when you forget that that was years leading up to that experience. I would also want to say this, this is a completely different point of view that you might find interesting from a subjective point of view of Gordon Raphael, the guy who's been doing music since he was, you know, in bands since 13 recording since I was like 19 or 20. The moment the strokes came back into my studio to start working on, is this it? I felt like I was the coolest. I was like the coolest guy and I was on top of the world and nothing could be better. Like there, there could be nothing better I wasn't thinking, I wish I was recording Janet Jackson and I wish I'd gotten a million dollar advance and I wished I'd lived in a big house in Hollywood. I wasn't thinking any of those thoughts. I was thinking of, I am in the right place at the right time. This is pure magic. The world is waiting for this record. And when that record was done, we all knew that it was really cool that we lived up to our expectation. And I just knew it was a matter of time that when people heard this, it was going to be great. And when I got my first royalty check for the, is this it? I never had a check like that in my, so for me, it was, I'm on the top of the world. I'm, you know, nothing could be better. I can be happier. I wanted to ask a question about the follow-up album. Yeah. Um, which has the disadvantage of being the sophomore album, but one that I consider to be equally great. I really yeah. do. I, yeah. I, I love the second album. Me too. And, and yet you weren't tapped immediately to be the producer for that one. They went to the Radiohead producer, yeah. Nigel Godrich, and then something didn't happen there and they came back to you because they hadn't learned their lesson the first time. So what was your approach for the second album? And, and what happened with Nigel that they weren't getting from him that made them come back to you? Um, jeez, oh, I... Uh... I didn't hear what they uh, I didn't hear what they did with him, it, and I was you can imagine if I was disappointed that I wasn't going to work on the first album. Well, after the success and the, all the kudos of the first album, you can imagine how I felt when that I was told that I wasn't going to record the second one. You know, it's just like I was pretty crestfallen, and then I got to have that like drug high of like, Oh, they're coming back again. I got to go like rocket my mood up again when they came back the second time. And all I can tell you is that when they came to me with the second album and they went in the studio and they said, here's our songs. And they just played them like it was a concert. They got a chair for me in the middle of the room and they just belted through the second album, you know? And I went, Oh my God. This is a group that were like kind of young guys that were really serious about their music. But now it's this band that's been touring night after night for two years, playing hundreds and hundreds of shows around the world. And how tight have they gotten? And how much better musicians are they now? And these new songs are just like, 
a step up in composition. You know, so it, I was blown away, knocked out when I heard this new collection of songs, you know. And so we had a discussion about how similar should it be to the first album and how should it be different to the first album. And then we just recorded for a, for a long time, three months it was, recording that record. And the first album was seven weeks. Correct. Right. 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 Which was already the longest I ever worked recording an album as a producer. And three months was like, wow. I, I almost have to wonder, and in, in I, I don't mean to, to bring up anything uh if if there's bad blood here or hurt feelings around this i don't i don't mean to bring it up but considering what had happened with uh gil norton on the first album and then what happened with nigel godrich on the second album w- was there a part of you when they went to record the third album that you were kind of expecting all right things are not going to go well with kane and they're going to be back to back to me again well, first of all, you know, I started the first, the third album, and then I was fired, and then he replaced me. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So at one point, maybe somewhere in the beginning, somewhere in the beginning of the second album, maybe Julian said to me, like, you know, well, maybe we just have a little superstition here where we like to fire a producer. We think it brings us good luck, you know, to make the, he said that like earlier. (laughs) And uh, yes, it turned out, it turned out that the one record that they started with me, I got fired very early in the process of recording the album. So that was the end of, that was the end of my story with the band. And to be honest, there is no bad blood in any of these stories. Or hard feelings. On the most recent Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums list, Is This It is number 114. Um, it ranks in the top 100 on a number of other lists. And the NME list holds it at number four. Okay. How, how do you, as the producer of this album, evaluate this work? Do you, do you also see it as, 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 a, as a greatest album of all time? Or are you too close to it to see it that way? I'm too close to it. I mean, even like one year ago, the Guardian newspaper like put it at number two behind, I think, Amy Winehouse. You know, in Britain, it rates much higher in the um, all-time lists and the decade lists. You know, I saw many times it number one and number two at the top of the, the greatest records of the decade, the greatest, you know, this and that. So, you know, I smile when I see that it's a nice feeling, but I, I can't say, you know, of course I think it's phenomenally great, but I'm also a person that I've been listening to music my whole life. And I have a lot of favorite albums that I think are some of the greatest albums in the world. Some of them probably make it on those lists. But I, I mean, I know what it's like to consider something one of the greatest albums in the world. And I like that, there are, that there's a large number of people on this planet that consider it one of the greatest albums in the world. It makes me feel really good, but I'm much too close to objectify it. I, you know, I'm much too close. Yeah, all that, all that being said, um, the nature of the podcast is we not only like to talk about music, but we also like to make lists about yeah. music, you know? Uh-huh. So what would you say are your personal, like, top five, like, these are the best albums? There's, there's too many, and it changes from uh, time to time. But if I was to say 
some names that come to the top of my mind, mm -hmm. okay? And in no particular order, I would say something like Diamond Dogs by Jimmy Hen by uh, David Bowie. Diamond Dogs by David Bowie. I'm going to stop you there because that's interesting. I, I hear the case for Hunky Dory. I hear the case for Ziggy Stardust, Station to Station, Station or Low. Why no. Diamond Dogs? Because it's, it is like one of the pro most profound listening experiences of my life. An album I probably heard like, you know, more than any other. I love all those records that you said. Mostly, I would say Ziggy and Hunky Dory. Less low, you know, pretty well. But yeah, Diamond Dogs to me is a masterpiece. It's just a you know, masterpiece. And it hit me and took me on a journey that I'm still on. Like it's really stayed with me. There's an album called Kimono My House by a group called Sparks. And that's also like one of the coolest records I've ever heard in my life. And I've heard it so many times that it's pretty dangerous how many times I've heard it. I would say Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix, number three out of five if I have to choose. Uh, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, We're Only In It For The Money, four. And if I have to pick one more for that list, Relayer by the band Yes. Oh wow! Really? Oh yeah. That is one of I, I thought you were, I thought you were going to go Sergeant Pepper and bring it all bring it no. you know, back to the start. No, I mean Sergeant Pepper is one of my favorites, and it's one of the best albums. Yeah, but if you ask me what I'm going to be passionately wanting to talk to you about, like yeah. an opportunity to tell my top five, that would be a great top five to say right now for people to associate that music with me well the rest of those the rest of those artists in that five are pretty represented i think on, on robin i's list so but not not the yes album so we would love to hear your case for why I that album i will yes yes, yes, yes was already for me like starting from their album time and a word which i think was their second album all the way up through Fragile, Close to the Edge, Tales of Topographic Oceans. They were doing something really expansive with music, going on huge journeys. And they featured the synthesizer and keyboards in a way that was like really influential on my own development and my own interests in those instruments. Well, on Relayer, their longtime keyboard player, Rick Wakeman, split the band because he was so unhappy with the record they made before. He just didn't want to make that record again. And they got this Swiss keyboard genius named Patrick Moratz, who came in and he's got big shoes to fill. Like I'm listening to this record the first time going like, who's this guy, man? Who can, is he as good as Keith Emerson? Is he going to be able to take Wakeman's place? And he just dazzles on synthesizer solos and sounds and textures completely out of this universe, giving me so many new things to think about and just taking it way higher in aggression and imagination and poetry. That's what I like about that band and that album. Imagination, aggression, and poetry. That's good. Have to, I'm going to have to go listen to it now. Yeah, listen to it wow. on a good stereo system. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Gordon, we want to thank you so much for being with us on this episode of You Forgot One. Uh, what a treat to talk to you about one of what we consider to be one of the greatest albums of all time. Thank you for your work on it and the influence and the legacy that it has had over the last 20 years of music. 
Thank you for having me. Well, we want to thank producer Gordon Raphael for being with us. What a treat to have him on the podcast. Let's conclude the way that we do every episode. Okay. And let me tell you that, Is This It? In in December of 2001, January of 2002, Is This It? was named the best album of 2001 by Billboard, by CMJ, which is the College Music Journal, which is now defunct, but was very popular during the time. Entertainment Weekly. NME, Play Louder, and Time Magazine. All, every single one of those media outlets declared, is this it, the best album of 2001. Magnet, Q, and The New Yorker included it in their unnumbered shortlist of best records issued in 2001. So almost immediately, here is this recognition of what a great album this is. It also was ranked number two in the Herald's end of, end of year best album list, number three by Mojo, number five by the New York Times, and then ultimately number eight by Rolling Stone. Since then, the album has been listed among NME's best albums of all time. It currently ranks number four on NME's list of the 100 greatest albums of all time. On the most recent Rolling Stone list, it ranks at 114. Here's what's interesting about that. On an enemy list, The Queen is Dead is number one. Is This is number four. And on the, the new Rolling Stones list, they have Is This It at 114. And 113 is Queen is Dead by the Smiths. Which is just so, I mean, that, that's such the Rolling Stone sensibility. Yeah, and for, for our listeners who may not know, NME is um, probably, it, it is the UK's version of Rolling Stone. It, it, is, it is the premier music magazine in the United Kingdom. It is, to, it is to the United Kingdom what Rolling Stone is to the United States. And so it is interesting that um, this album never reached number one in the u.s charts this album peaked at number 33 on the billboard charts it went to number one and stayed there in the uk um so this was a multi-week number one album in the united kingdom um it is multiple time platinum in the united kingdom it has only sold just over a million copies in the united states Uh, and so there is a an appreciation for this album on the other side of the pond that there doesn't seem to be here but all of that to be said, Micaiah, is this worthy of inclusion in our first 25? There's this like, kind of famous quote by Brian Eno about the Velvet Underground. And the Strokes have been commonly compared to the Velvet Underground and the CBGB scene in the 1970s. But really, they don't really sound very similar. But what, what makes them the same is their level of influence, this, this level of just like hearing it and being like, this is different, this is new, this is what's going to happen from now on. That's what they have in common with the Velvet Underground. And the Brian Eno quote is, you know, he says that, you know, even though, I'm going to paraphrase, that Velvet Underground's first album only sold 30,000 copies the first five years, everyone who bought one formed a band. 
right? So even though the Strokes was a huge success, right? Um, not, you know, unlike the Velvet Underground, but so many people I know, if you had a Strokes album, you were probably also in a band, right? And so they, their influence uh, is is huge on me and the people who I played music with. And yeah, I, that as far as albums of the 21st century, absolutely. No, no question this this belongs you know in, in this first group and uh when we finally settle on the the top 100 i i see that it's i think it's gonna you know stay well listener as always we want to know what you think what is your take on is this it by the strokes of course we want to hear from you on instagram at you forgot one on twitter at you forgot one pod or you can reach out to us on our website youforgotone.com. You can go to the post for this episode. You can hear more from Gordon Raphael and see the list of the albums he recommended. And you can leave us a comment there as well. And we look forward to hearing from you. And we will see you back next week. Mm-hmm.